Imagine that you're freezing to death. Hypothermia develops in stages. First, you shiver as your body tries to heat itself up. Your heart rate accelerates, trying to push warmth through your veins and arteries. While your pulse races, you begin to feel tired and confused. When your core temperature drops below 90 degrees Fahrenheit, your heart slows again. You're sluggish. It's hard to stay awake. As your condition worsens, you struggle to gasp for air. Your erratic circulation causes tissue damage. Microscopic ulcers form in your stomach. Frostbite makes your extremities tingle. You feel tempted to scratch your numb nose and cheeks, but doing so will damage your dying flesh. Eventually, your heart gives out. You die. It's relatively easy to tell when someone has died from hypothermia. Often, the deceased will have discolored spots in their stomach lining, hemorrhages in their joint tissue, and scratches around their face. But in 1975, a man died during a blizzard. When police found his body, his only injury appeared to be a small cut on his leg. His autopsy reports never indicated any signs of frostbite, ulcers, or tissue damage. But for some reason, morticians determined that he died from exposure to the elements, despite there being no physical evidence to back up the conclusion. Which is probably why people still debate what really killed Peter Gibbs. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know. But in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the Great Mull Air Mystery. On Christmas Eve 1975, an experienced pilot took off from a remote runway on Scotland's Isle of Mull. His airplane never returned. But four months later, his body turned up on a hillside, virtually uninjured. Today, we'll tell the story of Peter Gibbs' final flight. We'll cover the manhunt to find him, the discovery of his body, and his baffling autopsy results. Next time, we'll examine some possible explanations for Gibbs' death, ranging from a mid-flight murder to a covert Secret Service operation gone wrong. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. 
the impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In the 1970s, fewer than 15,000 permanent residents lived on the Scottish Isles of Skye and Mull. Though situated close to the mainland, traveling between the islands was difficult. With no commercial airports, travelers had to rely on long ferry rides. Despite the hassle, both islands remained popular tourist destinations, which is why 55-year-old businessman Peter Gibbs and his 32-year-old girlfriend Felicity Granger found themselves on Mull in December 1975. Gibbs worked for a property development company, and a few hotels on the Scottish Isles seemed perfect for his portfolio. For their stay, the couple chose the Glenforsa Hotel, which included a unique feature, a small private runway for airplanes that made traveling from island to island easy. Gibbs found someone willing to lease him a small Cessna brand plane for the duration of their trip, despite his pilot's license being expired. Ultimately, Gibbs decided the convenience of a plane was worth the risk of flying illegally. After all, as an experienced pilot with thousands of hours spent in cockpits, he didn't anticipate anything going wrong. By Christmas Eve, the risk seemed to be paying off. Gibbs and Granger spent the afternoon soaring over sky, admiring the rolling landscapes, familiarizing themselves with the island's geography, and dreaming about their future. As evening neared, they knew they needed to turn around and head back to Mull. The forecast predicted a snowstorm that night, and as much as they appreciated the airstrip at their hotel, it wasn't an easy landing. A 500-foot rise loomed on the right, with the shoreline directly to the left. It had no crew or control tower. It was just a flat area with a strip of mowed grass. And worst of all, it didn't have any lights. Luckily, this didn't prove to be a problem for Gibbs and Granger. The couple arrived back under a clear sky. After touching down around 4.10 p.m., they disembarked and left the airstrip. That evening, they enjoyed a large meal served with whiskey and red wine. The mood was festive. They were only a few hours away from Christmas Day, which happened to also be Gibbs' birthday. But Gibbs was focused on business more than pleasure. He and his girlfriend talked about their potential investment— they speculated how much of a profit they stood to make, especially if they advertised the convenience of Mull's airstrip to the right clientele. The only downfall was the runway's lack of lighting made it dangerous to land at night. But Gibbs wasn't convinced this really was an obstacle. He argued that it should be easy to set up a few large flashlights along the landing strip. They wouldn't provide much illumination, but they should be sufficient, even after sunset. Granger wasn't convinced, and when the hotel staff overheard their conversation, several employees agreed. They knew the airstrip could be difficult, even in ideal conditions. 
Pilots needed to land with precision to avoid colliding with the hill or plummeting into the sea. That level of accuracy would be nearly impossible after dark. But Gibbs didn't want to hear the protests. The longer the conversation went on, the more stubborn he became. He already had a reputation for being difficult, and the alcohol likely didn't help his obstinance. Eventually, he said he would prove that nighttime flights were safe by taking off and landing that very evening. This announcement didn't go over well. The Glen Force's staff feared that Gibbs was risking his life to prove a point. They convinced the hotel manager, David Howitt, to ask Gibbs to reconsider. But David couldn't change his mind. Around 9.30 p.m., Gibbs finished his meal and marched out to the airstrip. The sun had long since set, and with no moon out, Granger reluctantly hurried after him into the pitch-black night. Outside, Gibbs instructed Granger to light two large flashlights and place them at the end of the runway. That way, he'd know where to aim. He gave her a ride to the end of the landing strip, and relenting, she set up the lights. News of Gibbs' endeavor spread throughout the Glenforsa Hotel. In time, a crowd formed inside the hotel bar. They dimmed the lights so they could watch the takeoff from indoors. Once Granger moved a safe distance away from the tarmac, Gibbs revved the plane's engine. And then, for whatever reason, he sat idle for several minutes. This was unusual. The plane he was in didn't typically need much time to get started. Maybe he was having second thoughts. Or maybe he was experiencing some kind of technical difficulty. We'll never know. Because before long, the plane fired up its propellers. It lurched forward and accelerated down the runway. Peter Gibbs soared into the night sky and was never seen again alive. Coming up, Gibbs' strange disappearance. Pinocchio, Sleeping Beauty, The Little Mermaid. They're all iconic Disney movies. But did you know the original versions of these stories did not end with a happily ever after? Hi, I'm Alastair from Parcast, and I'm hosting a new Spotify original called Once Upon a Time. For nine weeks, we're commemorating the 120th anniversary of original Imagineer Walt Disney's birth by lifting the curtain and comparing some of your favorite Disney stories with their earliest tellings. Once Upon a Time will chart Disney's career triumphs, as well as the crushing defeats that almost ruined it all. We'll also look at what it took to bring these stories to life and why Disney's adapted versions became so memorable across generations. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Once Upon a Time. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. On December 24, 1975, businessman Peter Gibbs attempted a reckless experiment. He believed he could land a plane after dark 
on a barely lit runway on the Scottish Isle of Mull. Several hours after sunset, he launched his rented Cessna aircraft into the dark night. The test flight was only supposed to last about five minutes, long enough for Gibbs to take off, turn around, and land. His girlfriend and several hotel guests watched him ascend into the sky, then soar off over the ocean. After disappearing from sight, the crowd eagerly waited for the plane to return. But it never did. A few hotel guests went outside and rushed toward the shore. The hotel manager's brother, David Howitt, crisscrossed the beach with his wife. They kept their eyes on the sky, but Gibbs' plane was nowhere in sight. The wind picked up and the air grew frigid. Chilled to the bone, David and his spouse gave up on the search and walked back to their home near the shore. Before getting too far from the runway, David glanced at the ocean one last time. He had a partial view of the shore, which was far below him, separated by a steep cliff. Tall pine trees blocked some of David's view, but he could make out a bright flash of light right on the waterline. It glowed for about 20 seconds, then disappeared. It almost looked like an emergency flare, like a plane had crashed into the ocean and a pilot was signaling for help. David had a radio at the Glen Forsa that was calibrated to pick up chatter between pilots and control towers. He returned to the hotel and scanned the frequencies, but there was no indication that Gibbs was in the area. And he didn't pick up any distress signals. David hopped in his car to drive along the coast, but he didn't see another flare. Maybe that 20-second flash had been an ordinary light playing tricks on his eyes, or a passing boat. It was impossible to tell. Meanwhile, Gibbs' girlfriend, Felicity Granger, remained on the runway. She stood, waiting. Any minute, Gibbs' plane might come roaring back to the ground. But after half an hour, there was still no sign of him. It was 10 p.m. and Granger couldn't wait any longer. She walked back into the Glen Forsa and told the employees that her boyfriend and his plane were missing. She wasn't panicking. She'd already rationalized Gibbs' disappearance. He must have changed his mind about attempting the dangerous landing. He'd probably flown to another local airport, somewhere with proper lighting. Any minute now, he'd call to confirm he was safe and sound. Even as clouds covered the dark sky and snow began to fall, she refused to let the hotel employees call the police. Granger insisted her boyfriend was fine. It was Christmas Eve and she wanted everyone to have a nice holiday. There was no point in making a fuss when she was sure Gibbs would turn up at any moment. But. As the minutes ticked by with no word, that looked less and less likely. Winds whipped the hotel, carrying freezing rain with them. A blizzard began. There was no way Gibbs could land in the storm. The Glen Forces staff and residents patrolled the shoreline and the hotel grounds as, inside, guests gathered around Granger. They tried their best to comfort and reassure her. But two hours after her boyfriend took off, she relented. She told the staff to call the police. Authorities leapt into action. 
Based on Granger's testimony about Gibbs' intended flight path, police tried to predict where he might have gone. A 500-foot hill sat parallel to the end of the runway. During takeoff, Gibbs would have steered away from the hill to provide himself enough room to turn around. This meant he most likely spent most of his flight over the ocean before turning back for a descent. If he couldn't see the torchlights from the sky, and if he misjudged the landing strip's location, he might have crashed on or near the hill. This scenario seemed especially likely when they considered Gibbs' reputation as a daredevil. Apparently, he once got lost during a flight and dove his plane until it almost touched the ground, just so he could see some road signs and get his bearings. But bad weather, a lack of sufficient lighting, and a daredevil spirit weren't the only reasons officials had to worry. During the investigation, police learned that in addition to Gibbs' license being expired, he was required to wear glasses when flying. And reports suggest he wasn't using corrective lenses when he took off that night. All things considered, the most likely explanation seemed to be that Gibbs crashed. Police just needed evidence to confirm their suspicion. Search parties focused their efforts on the hill by the runway. Though it's unclear why, it appears they ignored the witness testimony about a potential flare over the ocean. Instead, they crawled over the cliffside, looking for any signs of wreckage. But they found nothing. The following day, December 25th, the police expanded their efforts, pulling in the Naval Air Service and Royal Air Force. They used sonar equipment to scan the shoreline, but they too came up empty-handed. Wild's stories about Gibbs' disappearance began to emerge. One potential explanation suggested that Gibbs had a plan B in case he couldn't safely land a plane. Even before the trip to Mull, Gibbs had allegedly talked about his emergency exit strategy. The plan was for him to fly as close to the ground as possible, then jump out of the cockpit. Now, obviously, this was a dangerous and unconventional plan, but it fit with Gibbs' daredevil reputation. To vacate an aircraft, he'd have to leap from a vessel going at least 31 miles per hour to avoid an engine stall. This would have made for a hard landing, especially because Gibbs' plane didn't have a parachute on board. He'd also have to fly extremely low to the ground to jump out safely. It's hard to imagine that he could have judged his elevation accurately if it was too dark for him to land. Plus, for obvious reasons, Cessna airplanes aren't designed for pilots to easily open doors while flying. A Board of Trade accident inspector conducted an inquiry into this claim and ruled the scenario out, calling it extremely difficult. Not to mention, if Gibbs had somehow defied the odds and abandoned the vehicle mid-flight, the plane would have gone down somewhere. And yet, the team searched for days without turning up any evidence of a crash. Eventually, the Christmas season gave way to New Year's Day. Officials didn't have any leads, but they were certain that Peter Gibbs couldn't have survived long without food or shelter. Not in the Scottish winter. Wherever he was, 
he was dead. So they called off their search. Four months after his disappearance, Shepherd Donald McKinnon was walking on the 500-foot hill that loomed over the Glen Forsa. Near the top, he spotted the body of a man sitting on a tree trunk, wedged between two branches of a fallen tree. As Donald drew nearer, he realized the man was Peter Gibbs. It looked like he'd slipped down the hill and landed in some boughs from above. It shouldn't have been a fatal fall, but crows and insects had already begun to devour his body. He was long dead. The location was less than a mile from the runway where Gibbs had taken off, in an area that had already been searched thoroughly. And strangest of all, there was no clear indication of what killed him. Coming up, Gibbs' autopsy results. Now back to the story. On December 24, 1975, Peter Gibbs took off from the Isle of Mull in a rented Cessna airplane. The vehicle vanished without a trace, but Gibbs' body turned up four months later. He wasn't discovered by a police officer or an organized search party. He was found by accident by a shepherd named Donald McKinnon. After making the discovery, McKinnon fetched David Howitt, the manager of the Glenforsa Hotel. As soon as David arrived on the scene, he confirmed that the corpse was Gibbs. He recognized the flying boots. When the police investigated, they couldn't explain how Gibbs had gone undiscovered for so long. He wasn't buried or behind any obstacles. McKinnon had spotted him without difficulty. Search parties had scoured the area in late December when he first went missing. In fact, McKinnon was one of those volunteer rescuers and had passed through those same grounds before. He couldn't possibly have missed Gibbs' corpse. It was like the body had materialized overnight and there was still no sign of the plane. What puzzled officials most, though, was Gibbs barely suffered any injuries, only a small cut, roughly three inches long, on his leg. His lack of injuries debunked Granger's claims that Gibbs might have jumped out of the Cessna. Even if he'd been traveling as slow and low to the ground as possible, he'd have ended up with more severe injuries than a minor cut. Police concluded it was more likely he'd walked or crawled to his final resting place. They suggested that the small airplane crashed in the ocean. Gibbs went down with it and then swam to shore. If that was the case, a nighttime swim in late December would have left Gibbs exhausted and freezing cold. So officials speculated that he tried to walk back to the Glen Forsa but died of exposure before reaching shelter. But if Gibbs froze to death, there should have been clear physical symptoms. For example, it's common for people who are freezing to death to try to bury themselves in the snow to escape the chilly air, or to strip their clothes off, a phenomenon called paradoxical undressing that isn't well understood. But Gibbs was discovered fully dressed and out in the open. There was no indication that he sought cover. To all observers, it looked like he just sat down for a rest and died. 
If he'd been in the ocean prior to his demise, he should have had minerals on his clothing and body, but the medical examiner didn't find any sea salt on his skin. More puzzling still was the question of how he'd ended up on that particular hill. To get there from the beach, Gibbs would have walked right past the road to the Glenforsa, and he would have walked at least a tenth of a mile out of his way, uphill. Probably even more. As we mentioned, given the way his body was positioned in the tree, he likely hiked even higher before falling down to his final resting place. It's hard to imagine that a disoriented man dying of hypothermia could have pulled off such a feat. This is why some officials speculated that the plane hadn't crashed into the ocean, but further inland. In this scenario, Gibbs would have been headed downhill toward the Glen Forsa when he finally succumbed to the elements. But it would also mean that the plane should have been found. And it wasn't. Not even after authorities launched yet another search. As it turned out, finding Peter Gibbs' body raised more questions than answers. Ultimately, Gibbs was buried on the Scottish mainland and the investigation of his death went cold until about a year and a half after his body was found. In October 1976, a man named Robert Duncan strolled along a beach on Mull. As he watched the water break against the sand and rocks, he spotted a dark shape on the beach. Duncan hurried closer and realized the object was a large tire possibly from an airplane's landing gear. Duncan reported his find to the authorities, who confirmed the tire came from an aircraft, and not just any plane, a Cessna. Based on the amount of salt and ocean minerals covering its surface, they suspected it had been underwater for several months or more. The amount of damage on the tire indicated that its aircraft had been involved in a major accident. It likely hit the ocean at a high speed, bounced off the surface, and flipped over, all before the tire separated. Officials had no way of confirming that the wheel had come from Gibbs' plane, but based on sheer probability, they figured it had to be his. The discovery spurred yet another search of the shoreline, but once again, investigators came up empty-handed and they wouldn't get another break for nearly 10 more years. In September 1986, two divers named Richard and John Grieve plunged into the Mull Sound. While underwater, they spotted a dark object lying on the ocean floor, in the shallow water, only about 100 feet from the surface. They swam closer to get a better look. Eventually, they realized it was an airplane. The aircraft was red and white and totally destroyed. The engine had apparently separated from the vessel on impact. Its wings had been ripped off and the propeller bent. The windshield was shattered, so the two could clearly see there were no bodies in the cockpit. But when he tried to open the doors, he found they were locked from the inside. They wrote down the registration number on the plane's tail rudder, G-A-T-V-N, which they later learned was the same as Gibbs, 
They snapped some photos and returned to the surface. Now, questions have been raised about the veracity of this story. The photos came out blurry. Reports also suggest that Gibbs' registration was listed on the rear fuselage, not the rudder. But regardless, the divers supposedly gave a full report to authorities and encouraged them to find the wreck and confirm the report for themselves. But once more, subsequent searches turned up nothing. It was like the airplane vanished again, making it impossible to confirm whether the submerged aircraft belonged to Gibbs. If we were to assume this was Gibbs' plane, it's unclear how he escaped the cockpit. He could have climbed out the shattered windshield, but this would have been a miraculous feat, given how destructive the crash apparently was. In fact, many experts have stated that it would have been nearly impossible to survive, and Gibbs was found virtually uninjured. Plus, in this scenario, Gibbs would have had to scramble out of the airplane and swim to the shore in boots, all without getting salt water on his clothes. As you might imagine, at the time, people seriously doubted the plausibility of this explanation, and a full 16 years passed before any other notable discovery was made. Then, in 2004, the Royal Air Force found a submerged wrecked aircraft while testing minesweeping equipment off the Scottish coast. It was clearly a Cessna, and Air Force personnel could tell that it had been underwater for a while. The wreck was too deep to discern much more than that, but they were able to take pictures of the plane. Then, two months later, they released their finding, and turns out it wasn't Gibbs' plane. It was a World War II-era vessel that crashed during a flight from the UK to South Africa. And that's the last known update. Without the ability to confirm Foster's account, the location of Gibbs' aircraft remains a mystery. And with the information and evidence that exists, we can't even say with any certainty that his airplane even crashed. Today, Peter Gibbs' strange reappearance, lack of injuries, and the missing plane are collectively known as the Great Mull Air Mystery. We aren't any closer to solving it than we were in 1976, but there's no shortage of possibilities. Some believe the incident is baffling because the general public doesn't know all the facts. A few days before Gibbs' disappearance, diamond thieves executed a heist near the Isle of Mull. Maybe the thieves kidnapped and murdered Gibbs as part of a complicated getaway plan. Or perhaps he vanished on purpose, faking his death to escape old business debts. Or maybe the British government hid Gibbs' real cause of death. According to some internet sleuths, the Great Mole Air Mystery may be connected to one of the Crown's most controversial espionage programs and the notorious paramilitary group, the IRA. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time to explore possible solutions to the Great Mull Air Mystery. 
You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take We Don't Know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Motion, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Skatovich. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Angela Jorgensen, with writing assistance by Amber Hurley and Connor Sampson. Fact-checking by Cara Mackerline, and research by Mickey Taylor. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Walt Disney had a gift for storytelling that resonated with audiences. From a puppet who wanted to become a real boy to a mermaid who yearned to be part of the human world, Disney has developed relatable and unforgettable characters. Hi, it's Alastair from Parcast. Join me for Once Upon a Time, a special collection of Parcast episodes celebrating the original Imagineer himself as well as the origins of Disney's most iconic characters and stories. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast once upon a time and catch new episodes Mondays free and only on Spotify.